Hello, everyone. You're listening to In the Weeds, an agriculture podcast hosted by Monica Jean and the Michigan Field Crops team. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening again to In the Weeds. This is Monica Jean here, um, field crops educator in the Michigan field crops team. And uh, we are doing a podcast today with a farmer. I always love having farmers on. It's great to share um, that practical information of someone with the boots on the ground. Um, And we're going to be discussing conservation practices and contributing to a community watershed. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Sarah, would you go ahead? I'm Sarah Franzak. I'm an environmental management educator with M Extension. I'm based out of Hillsdale County, but I have a statewide appointment. So I help farmers make good environmental choices on their farm and reach their environmental goals. Always good to have Sarah here. She keeps me well-rounded so I don't just speak agronomy crap. Um, And Dan, our guest farmer, thank you so much for joining us. Do you mind just uh, introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your farm's history, and what you have going out on your farm. Yeah, hi, um, Dan Ritter. Uh, I farm uh, between Elkton and Bad Michigan, tip of the thumb. Um, family farm, uh, born and raised. Um, had cattle and cows up until, well, my son went off to college and I didn't want to have be married to cows anymore. So, so yeah, we're just strictly crop, cash crop farmers now. Um, corn, wheat, oats, um, and uh, food grade soybeans. Um, now about 920 acres right now. So. And now in between those, you said you have corn, wheat, oats, and then food grade soybeans. So where Correct. are you putting um, your cover crops? Wherever I can. Um, I do cereal rye after corn, um, a uh, concoction multi-species cover crop after uh, oats and wheat. I, forgot, I guess I forgot to mention wheat too, but yeah, we do wheat too. And then soybeans is always always kind of a struggle. This year, I'm going to try and intercede some uh, vetch and or Dutch white clover at leaf. Okay. So that one uh, next year. Are you getting close to that right now, leaf drop? Yeah. Um, the food grade soybeans that we're growing right now, it's a DSC variety. It's like a 3.5, excuse me, a 2.5. And that's a little bit late for this area but we've been making it work for a lot of years now. Sometimes you just, you got to wait for it to fully, fully mature to harvest. So it's a struggle to try and get weed in after since we don't do dry beans. So yeah, sometimes there might be some. <laughs> <laughs> wait for drifts to, to melt away last, last fall to finish some soybeans. So that was, that was last year. Last year was miserable. Um, so with those cover crops you use, I understand you also do some other conservation practices on your farm? Yeah, I love filter strips. We've got large dairies in our area that we get manure from, and uh, I use those filter strips not only for the for the buffer, but as traffic lane for the tankers to go down. Not that we're taking those filter, filter strips out and abusing them. You know, that, that sod can support a lot of heavy traffic, so... You know, we, we use those as pathways to try and uh, keep compaction out of the fields. No-till, we do, uh, for the most part, everything no-till. You know, maybe a shallow ver- vertical till sometimes, mostly no-till. Works out really well. We're kind of labor 
labor limited here. So, you know, if you can manage it right, you know, as far as no-tilling, you know, corn varieties, we shorten up our maturities, plant our soybeans first and plant our corn second for the ground to, to warm up and dry out. And uh, it works good. Uh, it works very well. So, Dan, um, being up yeah, in the sun, yeah. do you oh. use manure? Yes, we do. Can you tell me a little bit about how you um, fit that in with your cover crops? Yes. Basically, what I've been trying to get done, it's hard. Some some applicators won't do it, but I found one that will. Most guys want to incorporate their liquid dairy manure, but they want to put out, you know, ten to 12,000 gallons of liquid manure. And since I'm no-till, you know, I like establishing a cover crop first and then coming back with a, you know, three, four, five thousand gallon application of manure, preferably like a, a split app. You know, real, realistically, I think with a cover crop, if you have three, three to five thousand gallons of liquid manure out there, that's probably all you need. That growing cover crop is going to sponge or soak up most of those nutrients and put them in an organic form and hold it till till next year. We've got several large areas in the area. You know, most most of them want to incorporate that. Do you surface apply it or do you knife it in? It's surface applied. So. The biggest, the biggest concern with these uh, manure applicators, they want to try and keep the odor down. I don't care if you incorporate it or leave it on the surface, it's going to have an odor for several days. So, you know, if you've got something growing out there that can start uh, absorbing those nutrients right away rather than, you know, applying it to bare ground and uh, all of a sudden you get a heavy rain and that flushes through the, through the soil profile and potentially out through the tile, I think putting on a growing cover crop is a lot better way to do it. Yeah, I think um, applying to ground that has tile um, can be tricky sometimes with manure, you know, and you, you do have to be careful about watching the weather and, and making sure your tile lines aren't running and all those things. If you want to do it right, it can be sort of tricky and it has a lot of caveats, right? <laughs> Lots of things you got to look out for. Sure. Can you tell us like three things that you've observed on your farm that benefit your crop yields? The liquid manure is, is, helps a lot. Um, natural part of the system, you know, the plants are designed to have animals defecate, urinate uh, on it. So you're introducing that, those microbes in that cycling system. So manure is one, you know, no-till or reduced minimal tillage to try and uh, keep your soil biology active in crops you know i think the biggest thing guys could make money on is let nature do the work for you you know work with it work with mother nature and not try and try and force the issue i see these guys using big disc rippers and subsoiling tools and you know i'm thinking gosh my tillage radishes do the same thing and all i gotta do is use a drill or broadcast it out there lightly incorporate it and i can do the same thing without the uh extra horsepower yeah and all that fuel right i refer to it as uh brute, brute force mentality where you know <laughs> soils i'm gonna make it in condition that's good dan <laughs> like that uh so you're doing filter strips and no-till and cover crops. Um, what got you into putting in conservation practices? Local NRCS Conservation District. You know, they had some programs where they had funding for cover crop, minimum tillage or no-till and strip tilling. And so we took advantage of that. And, uh, you know, I started doing a lot of research, you know, Ray Archuleta and, you know, all these guys that have been preaching this stuff for a lot of years. Let's put it to the test. It started started there, I guess. Chisel plowing, you know, I got thinking, you know, why, why, why would anybody 
in their right mind have a nice level field and then go out there with a chisel plow and make it rougher and heck and then have to level it all off again the next spring so yeah like i said i'm, I'm trying to work with mother nature not not fight her so as you know dan we have this grant with the nature conservancy and farm bureau and msu to work on forming watersheds in the saginaw bay and you yourself have been participating in a, a farmer-led watershed group, very much what we're trying to get working in some other counties that are to the, to the west of you or in the, more in the central Michigan area. And I just, I wanted to reflect on that a little bit or, or have you reflect on that a little bit. So could you discuss the role you play in that group? Yeah, um, a friend of mine, Steve Tate and I, you know, Steve's been, been no-tilling a lot longer than I have and uh, <clears throat> some initial challenges to to no-tilling. Um, we figured a lot of stuff out whether our, you know, our own uh, mistakes and experiences or learned from other people um, and you know basically we've come to the conclusion no-till works. A lot of these cons- conservation practices can be implemented and you can still make good money maybe even more so than what, what conventional farmers are doing. So I guess we wanted to uh, make our information or our knowledge available on to share it. Got a hold of uh, um, Ben Wickerham from the Nature you know, who we knew going to Nature Conservancy meetings and kind of told him what our, our idea, idea was. We started from there. You know, ben, ben helped us out with logistics and mailers and things like that. And so far it's been, uh, uh, we've had a really good response. You know, it's not as if we're trying to push an agenda or, you know, the meetings that we hold you know, we introduce ourselves and we just kind of let the conversation go from there. It's, you know, if farmers have questions, we're, we're there to answer them. It's kind of like a, uh, a roundtable discussion. You know, we'll have maybe some topics that we want to touch on, but there's guys that are just looking for information, practical, useful information. So that's where Steve and I thought, you know, I think that would be good for the area. I mean, when you drive drive by a field that you know, has been freshly plowed or going through winter and then coming into the spring and you see topsoil just running off the, through the ravines out into the ditch. And then the next year they got to come in with a, with a backhoe or excavator and clean the ditches out because all that topsoil ran into the ditch. It's hard to watch anymore, you know, now that we can see how our farms have uh, handled uh, a lot of this excess moisture going through the winter. So um, you were talking about your dishes having to get cleaned out, and I, I made me think about the drain commissioners. And has your relationship changed with your drain commissioner since you put on some cover crops and using different management practices? Well, you get, I, I, you getting along with him better? <laughs> I guess we haven't discussed uh, about it, but I'm sure they're happy that, you know, these practices are in place. But the thing is, Oh, these drains, you know, if they need to be cleaned out, it's the landowner's responsibility to get them cleaned out. So, you know, if a drain needs to be cleaned out, everybody that owns land in that watershed has to pay their portion to get it cleaned out. So, you know, uh, if we can maintain these drains better and not fill them up with sediment, you know, it's the the landowners that should be happy that, you know, that doesn't have to be done. Because it's it's, it's expensive. It can be very expensive to to get those assessments on your taxes and... And have to work on on drains. Plus, it's it's taking some of your field out when they're there cleaning. You know, they they might have to mow down your corn to get in there and clean out those ditches. So it's really uh, advantageous to keep those di- those drains clean. Correct. Do you see erosion as like the number one issue in your area, or is there any other like water issue that you think is 
pressing that you guys discuss in your group? Well, since we live, we're based peninsula up here, you know, we got water on three sides. Um, you know, I think one of the bigger concerns that we have, these large dairy and manure management, water runs downhill and anything that's in that water, it, you know, goes out into the, into the bay or may need to do a better job with that. Not that I don't think that guys want to or are um, experimenting with better ways to um, manage manure. There's some large dairies that have purchased um, injectors, you know, running a drag line and injectors, you know, all that's very expensive to do. So, you know, it's, it's kind of an ongoing challenge, I guess. Um, but I, you know, I think uh, we need to address that a little bit better, you know, whether it's through cover crops in the ways that I, I mentioned, but. So like basic nutrient management kind of stuff. Correct. Dairy, dairy, the dairies are just looking to get, rid of the manure they, you know they do have to work with a uh, uh, manure management specialist my soil tests have to be made available um, so that we're not over applying and when you do when they do apply you know it has to be at, at crop removal recommendations so yeah i mean it's it's being done it's it's uh but it's just a challenge that you know the the volume of manure that they they have to get rid of you know we're talking millions and millions of gallons of of liquid dairy manure you know, basically you need enough um, potash and phosphorus in solution for plant availability and microbes are the ones that I said supply most of that you know you can get wrapped up in nutrient removals and and like that but if you've got a well-functioning biologically active soil um, the amount of commercial nutrients that you need to apply it could become little or none. Yes. Yeah. Your soil is so much more efficient cycling and breaking down residue and, you know, being able to then utilize that and turn it over for the next plant. And yes. Yeah. You hit it on the head, Dan. So yeah. Nit- Nitrogen is the, the one that's kind of a moving target. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got several different forms of, of nitrogen in your soil profile. Um, nitrate, ammonia. I can't think of the other one, but there's, you know, you've got an organic form of, of nitrogen, which, you know, if you do a nitrate, side-dress nitrate test, um, you know, you're just measuring one form of it. Um, so, you know, we do nitrate tests, um, and we uh, typically what I'll do is I'll take 80% of, of what comes back as a, as the actual value of what's available for nitrate. If you turn dry, um, you know, some of the nutrients aren't as mobile or, or in solution, those sometimes a little bit better to have a little excess out there at what I usually do, you know, I'll put up a little bit excess nitrate nitrogen because I don't want my crop to uh, become short on it. But that's where my cover crop in the fall comes in, you know, my cereal or rapeseed or you know, whatever I put out there after corn that I use that as a kind of a sponge to soak up the excess nitrogen going into winter. And then the spring when that takes off, you know, my uh, soy biology is active because I've got growing roots out there. I'll plant my soybeans into into that cereal rye. Dan, you talked about your watershed group that you're involved in. And I was wondering how you felt like your use of the conservation practices and your involvement in that watershed group really benefit your community at large. Well, I'm sure my neighbors are saying, you know, gosh, he's, you know, he's doing something different and it seems like it's, you know, working for him. When you till ground, especially in an area where you've got a lot of sand, you've got wind events that will lift that sand and take to the ditches. We don't have as much, I mean, there's still guys that um, conventional farm, light ground, 
And in the spring, you get a wind event and you've got dust flying. And uh, in fact, one, the one year, the one guy had uh, had his ground work nice and had it nice and flat and level, but it was a sand, very sandy field and the wind picked up and they had actually uh, sand drifts blowing across the road that they had to get the county out to uh, um, blade it off the road. Wow. I, Both, you know, where, I, where I live, we don't have it. <laughs> We don't have a soil that light, so that's something I've never seen. Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, wind erosion can be a, a big factor up here. Um, had, had a neighbor that does sugar beets and uh, conventional till. They had uh, they replanted the beets on the sand hills three times because they kept getting sheared off from the wind, and uh, they had to go out there with and put some uh, manure out there to try and hold the topsoil from blowing away. Wow. I hear in what you're telling me that there's a lot of benefits to farmers. Do you think that there's any benefits to like larger communities of people like in inside your villages and cities? And I would just say, Dan, I think you touched on a little bit when you brought up the fact that when you guys practice these conservation practices, then that sediment doesn't reach um, the ditches and that prevents like other people from having to clean out, you know, along their land. So that's a benefit to the community. Well, the the other thing is, I, I know phosphorus is a, is a huge concern in waterways, nitrogen is concern in waterways. And since we, we live close to lakeshore, you know, that sediment or those nutrients um, get into the waterway and get out towards the beaches. So, you know, you've got the whole E. coli thing and the old comes into play going out to the out into the bay so yeah i know i've heard that they're experiencing more algae blooms in saginaw bay and it's not a harmful algal bloom but it's cladophora right so it's it's that green sort of um grassy stuff right it can be really smelly when it gets up on the beaches and probably not something you want to swim in no No. (laughs) don't get me wrong i mean farmers are are doing uh, the best they can. You've got nutrients out there, and all of a sudden, a four, six, or eight-inch rain comes along, and that's a lot of water. It's going to move move residue. It's going to move topsoil. It's going to move whatever, and it's going to go up the drain. Yeah, you know what I always think, Dan. Our, our farms have changed so much in kind of a short period of time, like size and. Um, our management practices, I think are, you know, some people are just more progressive than others. It's catching up to the drastic changes we've, we've had um, to the farms. And, and then on top of that, we now have some more exciting weather that's occurring that would complicate that whole system. And so I, I never want people to think that like, you know, farmers are just not caring and do, but it's just, um, there's a lot of science involved in this. It's not cut and dry. And we're all just trying to work towards, you know, making, continuing to improve. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was a rain event here, a local town had eight inches eight inches of rain in a short amount of time. And uh, this, we had just gone through a dry spell and we just started getting some rain and then this eight inch rain happens. And, you know, fortunately the, the, the ground was that dry and it was able to absorb a lot of it, but a lot of it ran off into the drains to the point where some of these drains were overflowing. So, yeah. And one of those benefits of having cover crops and doing no-till is that your ground can soak up more of that water when it comes and yes. uh, and hold on to it 
And, and that's a great benefit for the community at large um, because you're slowing that water down, right? Correct. You're letting it infiltrate. Correct. Correct. Well, last question we have here is why should other farmers look at conservation practices like the ones you've applied, Dan? I would just, you know, this is just our parting message. We want to give you an opportunity. So um, if there's any last words of wisdom you want to share or one or two that was really easy to incorporate on your farm, that'd be a great place to start for someone who's a novice. Those would be great things to share. Boy, I guess, you know, I just wish uh, everybody would do some form of cover crop. And you know, I don't care if you're conventional tilling or, or, or what, but, you know, try and keep the ground covered as much as possible. It'll benefit you in so many ways. You know, your soil biology will thank you. You know, the excess nutrients that you have out there will be, you know, kind of stored in those plants for the following year. As far as managing a cover crop, you know, there's so many different species that you can use to to accomplish goals. You know, if you've got compaction issues or if you want to create nutrients or if you want to absorb nutrients and, and hold them, you know, I guess my biggest passion is, is trying to see that guys do a good job of cover cropping and, and don't get themselves into trouble because cover crops work. I think that's uh, one of the biggest benefits I think farmers should be taking advantage of. What's your favorite cover crop? <laughs> oh, I love blends. I love blends. If I had to do if I would just three species, it would be oats, radish, and a, a some kind of legume, whether it's peas or clover. I like uh, I like bursium clover because it can winter kill, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I can uh, survive the winter. So, you know, whether it's... Uh, Crimson clover or, or uh, medium red clover. I love that mixture. I enjoy the the love you've spent on your farm figuring out your cover crop. Uh, <laughs> that's great. So yeah, I love sunflowers. Mm. Um, everybody, you know, people like to stop along the side of the road and kind of either either take pictures or they might help themselves to one, which I don't care. You know, it's a something for pollinators. I guess the other, another species I really love is buckwheat. Um, oh yeah. Comes up fast. Uh, comes up fast. It start, starts blooming very fast and honeybees. So I hear that a lot from people in dairy areas that they really like buckwheat. I just uh, wish yep. it grow a little later in the season. It would fit into a window kind of like a cereal rye would. It doesn't like to tolerate the cold very much. So Cross sensitive. Otherwise, it would be like the perfect crop for Michigan, you know, come up real fast, have all that great root system but still get in after corn or soybeans, you know, but we're not that, we're too cold. <laughs> yeah, that's where, you need, you know, getting getting into the second week of September, in our area at least, I start looking at things that can try and survive the winter, Dutch white clover, Ladino, or uh, crimson clover, Austrian winter peas, rapeseed, vetch. Those are awesome broadleaves that can, can survive the winter. I just wanted to mention that there is a Facebook page, the Saginaw Watershed Farmer Group, and we also have an email address, and that's waterqualityfarming at gmail.com. And that's where if you're in um, the Saginaw Bay watershed, you can get more information on getting involved in the farmer to farmer watershed group, much like what Dan's been running and working towards with a couple of farmer partners up in the thumb. We're trying to form those in the central Michigan area And there you'll actually find a Facebook Live event that's now a video you can watch with Dan. 
talking about, you know, time commitments and um, what it takes to be a leader in that set, that watershed, but also, um, you know, being a part of it, of that community uh, and, and that kind of value you get participating. So I just want to thank you, Dan, for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Having a farmer's voice is always better than having another uh, extension educator. <laughs> You're welcome. This podcast has been brought to you by the MSU Extension Field Crops Team. For more podcasts or information, please visit us at canr.msu.edu backslash field underscore crops. Thanks for listening.